I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy 2. First Timothy 2, and um, this morning we're going to be looking at verse 11 through to verse 15, but I'm, I'm going to read for us the whole chapter just to, to remind you of the overall context of First Timothy chapter 2. So beginning in verse 1, first of all then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should, not, should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. And then verse 11, this is what we're looking at. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, I pray that by your spirit, you would give us minds that would understand and hearts that would receive, that would be receptive to your word. I pray, Lord, that you would help each of us not to rise above your word, but to submit ourselves under it and not to think that we are wiser than you. Help us to trust you. Help us to conform our lives to your truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've seen thus far in chapter 2 that Paul has been primarily concerned about how the church uh, conducts itself when it gathers as the church for the worship of God. That has been the focus of Paul's instruction here in chapter 2. Paul has instructed the church to, to pray and have a global concern, to pray for those in authority. He's also instructed men to conduct themselves in a certain manner, particularly to be holy men devoted to prayer. Also, Paul has instructed the women to endorn themselves with modesty and virtue in verses 9 to 10. And here in verses 11 to 15, Paul instructs women in the church on how to conduct themselves in relation to men. And so this morning, the focus of my sermon will be geared toward the women. But that doesn't mean that the men are going to be off the hook. 
I will have some words for them as well. Now these verses that we just read, verses 11 to 15, have become some of the most controversial verses in the Bible, basically since the 1960s and the rise of modern feminism. These verses are very difficult. And so before we dig into the text itself, I need to make some entry comments to address some things that I think will serve us in the long run. These verses are difficult, and they're difficult for several reasons. For one, some of the things that Paul says um, in this section are simply difficult to understand. For example, what does Paul mean when he says, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor? Or, what does Paul mean when he says in verse 15, yet she will be saved through childbirth? I thought we were saved by grace. So there are certain things in this passage that are difficult to understand. Secondly, this passage is difficult because it pushes against the cultural narratives of our day. And whether we like to admit it or not, each of us are influenced by the cultural narratives of our day. They have rubbed off on us. And God's word has a way of confronting some of those cultural narratives that don't square with God's revealed will. In our individualistic, secular culture, boundaries and limitations placed upon us are automatically viewed as oppressive according to the cultural narratives of our day. For example, um, one of the major cultural narratives of our day is pursue your dreams and reach your full potential as a human. And if there's anything that would restrict you from doing so, it must be a form of oppression. And therefore, it must be removed. For example, when was the last time you saw a Hollywood movie where a young man or a young lady chose to forego pursuing her dreams because of her commitment to care for her culturally conservative, traditional family? You don't see that in Hollywood. It's always the opposite. It's always a refusal to conform to the traditional values of one's family in order to reach one's full potential. All expectations or limitations placed upon us by others ought to be rejected in the pursuit of self-fulfillment and fulfilling our dreams and reaching what we want to reach. Let me be frank, we see this when we think about marriage and fatherhood and motherhood in our culture. How many people put off marriage and having children because both marriage and children place limitations and restraints upon you? See, all of this means that it's almost impossible for us to read a text like the one here and not feel as though Paul is being oppressive towards women. Because he has placed some kind of limitation upon women within the gathered body of Jesus Christ. Claire Smith, the author of God's Good Design, tells a story of a new Christian woman who who comes from a more traditional culture. She's a university student and is is part of an ethnic-based church who reads 1 Timothy 2 for the first time. 
And when she was asked whether she found 1 Timothy 2 difficult to read for the first time, she replied, no, it's easy. Paul is saying that women shouldn't teach in church because that's the way God wants it. Now, Smith says it would be easy to suppose that her ethnic cultural background probably made it easier for her to do that. But Smith then says this, but can you see that the opposite might also be true? That our culture, cultural influences our reading, sorry, that our culture influences our reading of the text and that many of the difficulties we find in it might exist because of our culture and our personalities and not because of the text itself. I saw this in my study this past week. It's amazing how many good Bible commentators try to get around what Paul instructs here. Because it doesn't naturally sit well with us. Thirdly, this passage can be difficult, um, especially for women, because many women have experienced serious harm at the hands of men. And any teaching or notion that would promote some kind of male authority within the church often creates an emotional response based upon negative experiences. And I don't want to downplay that. And so many will promote the idea that the teachings in the Bible are actually what produces male dominance and abuse. And therefore, we need to rid ourselves of the teachings in the Bible that speak about male authority within the church and in the family. But if we believe the Bible to be the divine word of God, we can't just do that. It's not the teachings of scripture that produces domineering men or negligent men. It's the sinful inclinations of men that take something that is inherently good and corrupt it. It's men not living up to the calling that is placed upon their lives by God that produces abuse and neglect. Let me just give you some interesting data about this. A sociologist, Bradford Wilcox, in 2004, published a monumental study called Soft Patriarchs, New Men, How Christianity Shapes Fathers and Husbands. Now, drawing on the most comprehensive and respectable data sets available, uh, this is in America, the National Survey of Families and Households and the General Social Survey, he compared the beliefs of mainline and conservative Protestant men on marriage, gender, and the family. He then examined the effects of these beliefs on a wide array, wide array of behaviors, including emotional attentiveness, parenting, and abuse. And here's what he discovered. Conservative Christian men who have traditional values pertaining to family, and here's the key, who regularly go to church have the lowest rates of domestic violence. In Wilcox's own words, contrary to the assertions of feminists, many family scholars, and public critics, critics, church-going conservative Protestant men cannot be fairly described as abusive and authoritarian family men wedded to stereotypical forms of masculinity. They outpace mainline Protestant and unaffiliated family men in their emotional and practical dedication to their children and wives, and they are the least likely to physically abuse their wives. 
Wilcox found that church-going conservative Protestant men spend more time with their children. They are more likely to hug and praise their children. Their wives report higher levels of satisfaction with the appreciation, affection, and understanding they receive from their husbands, and they spend more time socializing with their wives. In regards to domestic violence, Wilcox says this, We have also seen that contrary to the predictions of their critics, church-going conservative Protestant men register the lowest rates of domestic violence of any group in this study. Indeed, church-going conservative Protestant family men have the lowest rates of domestic violence of any major religious group in the United States. Now here's what's shocking. Men who identify as conservative Protestant men who don't go to church have the highest rates of abuse in America. And then everyone else is in between. So conservative men who regularly attend church, hear the word of God, are the most likely to be the best husbands in society. Whereas men who identify that way but don't go to church are the most likely to wrong their wives and their children. And I don't think that should surprise us. Because when men are being taught the scriptures and hearing things like husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her or seek not your own interests but the interests of others or the greatest in the kingdom is the servant of all, that will shape a spirit-filled man and how he uses his leadership, his headship and authority within the home. You see, our experiences, whether we like it or not, can impact how we approach the Bible. And that's why a passage like this can be difficult for many of us because, some of, because of some of the harmful experiences we've had, especially for women. And I want to be sensitive to that. But this is where I want to challenge us and to make sure that we're doing all that we can to understand what the scriptures say and to align our lives according to the scriptures because God's word is always for our good, even when we struggle to fully grasp it. And when people misuse the word of God, that is not grounds for us to reject the word, but rather to go deeper into it and to understand it and use it and live according to it. So with all that being said, I want us to look at the passage and seek to really understand what Paul is teaching. Now, a few things to remember. The context for Paul's instruction is the gathered church for worship. That's the focus of this chapter. Paul's concerned about how men and women conduct themselves in the gathering of the saints for worship. Also, I want to show you the structure of the text as I think it will help us as we go through it. In verse 11 and 12, Paul provides both a positive command and also a negative command. There are things that Paul says women can do and should do, and there are things that women should not do in the assembly of believers. And then in verses 13 to 14, he provides his reasoning for the commands. Verses 13 to 14 explain why these commands have been written. And then in verse 15... He describes this, the redemptive hope for women. So let's begin with what Paul permits and what he forbids. In verse 11, Paul exhorts 
that women should learn quietly with all submissiveness. This is what he permits. He exhorts us women to learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now, a few things that need to be said. First, Paul wants women to learn. He wants women to grow in their knowledge of God and in the scriptures. He wants women to be theologically robust in the same way that men should be theologically robust. And so to my sisters in the Lord, please hear me this morning. I want you to grow in the knowledge of God, to think deep thoughts about God for your own sake and for the sake of the church. Paul believes that women can learn and grow in the knowledge of God just like any man can. Secondly, Paul wants women to learn in a certain manner. And really that's the emphasis here. He wants them to learn quietly with all submissiveness. What does Paul mean by this? Well, does this mean that women are to be silent, never to speak ever in the gathered assembly? Well, no, I don't think that's what Paul meant. See, one of the principles in interpreting Scripture is the idea that Scripture itself helps us interpret Scripture. In other words, when we study a specific text, we must always consider how the rest of Scripture may inform the study of that particular text and how we should interpret it. So one of the reasons why I don't think Paul means that women should be absolutely silent in church is because there are other passages in the scriptures that demonstrate that women can both pray and even prophesy in church. 1 Corinthians 11.5 suggests this. And so you have to take that into consideration when you study a text like this. So what is Paul really getting at then? Well, Paul's saying that women should have a quiet demeanor, as Schreiner says, a spirit that is peaceable instead of argumentative. He's talking about having a quiet, non-rebellious spirit instead of complete silence. The focus is on demeanor and attitude. Now, when Paul says, with all submissiveness, we need to ask, to whom? Who are the women called to submit to? Well, the context demonstrates that women are called to submit to those who teach and exercise authority in the church. In other words, women are called to be submissive to their spiritual authorities, which are the elders of the church. You see, this passage isn't saying that a woman is called to submit to every man in the church. That's ludicrous. She is called to obey, follow her spiritual leaders, which are her elders. So let me make this really clear to the men. You as a man do not have any authority over the women of this church simply because you're a man. Paul's exhorting the women to learn and be submissive to those in spiritual authority over them. Now, most likely there were women in the church in Ephesus that were causing disruption. And Paul knows he needs to address the problem. And that's why he writes what he writes. But what Paul calls women to hear isn't actually all that different than what the scriptures call the entire church to, whether you're male or female. In Hebrews 13, 17, the writer of Hebrews says this to the church made up of both men and women. Obey your leaders and submit to them. That's a command to the whole church, both men and women, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. 
Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to So the whole church is called by God to submit to their, to their spiritual authorities. So it's not as though Paul is saying that, that the only people who have to obey and submit in the church is women. No, no. The entire church is called to obey and submit to those in spiritual authority over them. Now, we know that the authority of pastors and elders is a limited authority. You are not called to submit to your pastor if he is calling you to do something that is contrary to the word of God. But here, Paul emphasizes the women, most likely because of some of the things that were taking place in Ephesus. So men, let me be frank. According to the scriptures, you're called to submit to your elders just as the women are called. But ladies, you are also called to submit to those in authority over you. And so Paul instructs the women to learn, but to do so with quietness and submission towards those in authority over them. That's what he permits. Now we need to ask, what does he forbid. Well, look at verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, there's a debate on whether Paul is forbidding two things or one thing here. But in some ways, it doesn't really matter. Whether Paul is forbidding authority expressed in teaching or if he's forbidding teaching plus exercising authority... The two, in reality, are related to each other. So let's, let's break this down. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Now, when Paul speaks of teaching here, we need to understand the context. Teaching here, as Schreiner says, involves the authoritative and public transmission of tradition about Christ and the scriptures. What I'm doing right now, this morning. The pastoral epistles testify to this. In 1 Timothy 4.13, Paul tells Timothy to devote himself to the teaching. In chapter 4.16, he tells Timothy to keep a close watch on the teaching. In chapter 6.2, he's concerned about the teaching that it not be reviled. In 2 Timothy 4.2, he tells Timothy to preach the word with complete patience and teaching. In 1 Timothy 5.17, elders in particular are called to labor and pre- in preaching and teaching. And so much of this instruction is to refute false teachers and to protect the church from heresy. So Paul is talking about the authoritative transmission of the scriptures in the public gathering of the saints. Now, does this mean that there is never any context in which women can teach or instruct men? Now, here again is where we need to allow the rest of scriptures the rest of the scriptures to inform us on how we think about this particular passage and the ramifications of this passage. And there are, there are many, are, are there any examples in the scriptures where women do in fact instruct or teach men? And the answer is yes. Now we don't have um, time this morning to go through all of them, but let me give you one Old Testament example and then a few New Testament examples. In 2 Kings 22, the book of the law, Deuteronomy, is found by Hilkiah, the high priest. 
and is brought to King Josiah, and when he hears it, he tears his clothes and wept because he knew that Israel had not been living according to God's law. And he sends Hilkiah the high priest and some of his advisors to visit Huldah the prophetess to inquire of the Lord. So yes, there were female prophets in the Old Testament. And when they speak with her, she prophesies and gives instruction to the men and sends them to inform Josiah of what she had said. She was instructing men in Israel who had some of the highest authoritative positions in the nation. In the New Testament, women are permitted to prophesy. And no matter how you want to think about prophecy, prophecy has by its very nature a teaching slash exhortation element to it. Also in Acts Acts 18.26, there is the example of Priscilla and Aquila After hearing Apollos preaching in the synagogue, they take him aside and began teaching him the way of God more accurately. Also in Colossians 3.16, Paul instructs the entire church to teach and admonish one another. Now this, of course, is in the setting of an informal gathering. It's it's when you are, are together with your brothers and sisters and it's saying, teach and admonish one another. Men and women should admonish one another so that the word of Christ may dwell in them richly. So when Paul forbids women from teaching here in 1 Timothy 2, I don't think he's saying that under no circumstances can a woman instruct a man. I think he's specifically speaking to the gathered assembly of the saints for worship where the word of God is preached by those who have spiritual authority. Now on top of this, Paul also says that women should not exercise authority over men. And in the context, it's clear that the teaching and exercising of authority are related. But Paul forbids women to exercise authority over men. And I think the context demonstrates that Paul is specifically referring here to pastoral authority. Because right after this, he addresses the office office of elders, those who give oversight to the church, those who have been given authority in the church. And he's saying, I do not permit women to exercise pastoral authority in the life of the church. You see, some people have taken this statement to such an extreme that any kind of leading or influencing on the part of women is forbidden. To the point that women can't lead or oversee any kind of ministry in the church. Because that means she'd be exercising authority. I know of churches that won't even allow women from the front to say after singing, you may be seated. I don't think that's what Paul had in mind when he gave this instruction. If that were the case, then Priscilla should not have remotely taught Apollos because that would have been seen as exercising authority. See, when the elders ask a woman in our, a woman in our church to lead a specific ministry, okay, let, let's take, for example, the Ernstine's Women's Shelter Collection at Christmas. And let's say we ask a specific woman who has a specific skill set in our church to oversee that ministry, and there is a team of people, both made up of men, men and women, a part of that team helping that ministry happen at Christmas. And they're following the guidelines, the instruction of that specific woman in regards to that ministry. 
I don't think that's what Paul is referring to when he forbids a woman from exercising authority. Historically, the church has always taught this passage primarily through the lens of forbidding women from the eldership of the church from exercising pastoral authority. Gerald Bray says this, Until the 1960s, it was usually taken for granted that women should not exercise pastoral authority in the church, and almost everyone agreed that Paul's teaching on the subject was straightforward, at least in its essentials. It is only since the rise of modern feminism that this traditional position has been widely challenged. So Paul forbids women from teaching and exercising authority over men. This pastoral authority. This is what he forbids. And now we need to ask why. Now many today who want to try and argue that Paul's instruction here is no longer binding will try to suggest that Paul was addressing a cultural issue at the time. So for example, they'll say the reason why Paul forbids women from teaching and exercising authority over men is that the women in Ephesus were uneducated. And so Paul forbids women from teaching or exercising authority, but if they become educated, they can teach and exercise authority. They will do all that they can to get around this text. They give speculation after speculation for why Paul forbids women teaching and exercising authority rather than looking at the specific reasons Paul actually gives. Paul gives his reasoning, the why for his instruction in verses 13 to 14. Look at what he says. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. So in order for us to understand why Paul does not permit women to teach or exercise authority over men, he takes all of us all the way back to the creation narrative in Genesis 2, where God first made man and woman. He grounds his argument in the creation narrative which transcends culture. And he says, Adam was formed first, then Eve. And with this statement, he's alluding to hierarchy within the order of creation. If you are a Christian, there is hierarchy in our worldview. It starts with God. He is above everything else. In Genesis 2, before Eve is made, God gives Adam the prohibition. And then he declares that it's not good for man to be alone. And God says, I will make him a helper fit for him. And as the story goes, God puts Adam into a deep sleep and he takes a rib from his side and creates the woman from Adam. And Paul, in his understanding of the scripture, reads Genesis 2 and understands that within the narrative, God has given Adam, as the man, a unique authority, for he was created first. Now, it doesn't mean that he is superior to the woman. It simply means he has been given a distinct role and function in creation. As Schreiner says, it is a modern, democratic, western notion that diverse functions suggest distinctions in worth between men 
and women. My prime minister has authority over me. But before God, we are equal. Adam has been given a different function than the woman. But that doesn't make him superior. For as we read in Genesis 1, both men and women are made in the image and likeness of God. And both of them are called together to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the creation. You have to think about how radical that statement would have been at the time it was written. In a world in which men dominated, God has Moses right. Men and women are made in the image and likeness of God. Both men and women are called to share in this commission that God has given them. They complement one another in fulfilling this. But God has also established distinctions between the man and the woman in regards to their function and role in creation And it's related to what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman made in God's image. But these differences are for one another. These differences are actually the key to seeing Adam and Eve fulfilling the commission that was given to them by God. God tells Adam to fill the earth. But we know Adam can't fill the earth unless he's able to create. In other words, Adam is dependent upon Eve for life. See, the man has been given an authority that was not entrusted to Eve. But the woman was given certain responsibilities that was not entrusted to the man. And Paul goes back to this, Genesis 2, to explain why he forbids women from exercising authority over men. And here's really what Paul's getting at. And this might shock you. It is contrary to how God has designed our natures as both men and women. It is contrary to our natures. Gerald Bray says this, If we reject Paul's teaching on women, we must also reject the biblical view of the world on which it was based. Indeed, it is hard to think of any other piece of pastoral advice which the apostle gives that is such a a solid theological underpinning as this one has. So he roots his instruction in the pattern of creation. Adam was formed first, then Eve. But he also provides a second reason, which is connected to the first reason, and we see this in verse 14. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, what in the world does Paul mean here? Does Paul mean, like some in the history of the church have taught, that women are more easily prone to deception and naivety? No, I don't think that's what Paul's saying. If that were the case, Paul would have forbidden women from teaching other women and children, but he actually encourages women to teach women and children in places like Titus 2, 3 to 4. Paul wouldn't commend that if he thought women were prone to being deceived by nature. Not only this, but human experience tells us that women are not more naive than men or more easily deceived. When someone comes knocking on our door to sell us something, I am far more easily deceived than my wife is. 
Also, does Paul mean that Eve is solely responsible for the fall? I mean, this, is, this sounds like Paul saying, this is all on Eve, right? Adam was not deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and committed transgression. Does this mean that Eve is solely responsible for sin? No, that's not remotely what Paul means. Because elsewhere, Paul roots the fall fundamentally in Adam's failure as the head of the human race. It was through him that sin entered the world. It was his transgression. Romans 5, 12 to 14 alludes to this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, sin didn't come into the world through Eve. It came into the world through one man. And death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. So Paul says, no, no, Adam transgressed God's law as well. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 22, For as by a man came death, by as a man have, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, not Eve, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So even though Eve sinned alongside Adam, it was actually through Adam that sin entered the world. Because he was the head of the human race, which only further demonstrates the authority that he had in the garden. You see, though there were consequences for, sin, for Eve's sin, which Genesis 3, Genesis 3 tells us, God fundamentally held Adam responsible for what happened because of his role as the head. So what does Paul mean then? Well, I'll be honest with you. It's not abundantly clear. And good theologians struggle to understand fully what Paul's getting at. But let me provide for you an explanation that I think is the best one, but it's not perfect. There's holes in it, okay? I think Paul uses the deception of Eve as simply as an illustration of what happens when the order of creation is distorted. Meaning, it's not that if men don't have authority in the church that women are always going to be led astray. No, no, no. Rather, Paul's simply pointing out that the result of what happened in the garden with Eve was partly due to the fact that Adam had neglected his responsibility, his responsibility as the guardian of the garden. He was called to keep and guard the garden. This is emphasized all the more when you look at the account of Genesis 3 and discover that Adam was there with Eve while the serpent was speaking with her. And what did Adam do? Nothing. He did absolutely nothing. He should have protected Eve and guarded the garden, but he did nothing and he then took of the fruit and ate as well. He neglected his responsibility and authority, and Eve was deceived and became a transgressor. Remember, it was Adam that the command was given to, not to Eve. Eve didn't even exist when God made Adam and gave him the command. Eve would have only known the command through Adam. You see, though the rabbis are not our ultimate authority, it's interesting that many of the Jewish rabbis taught that in the fall, there was a reversal of the creation order. See, here's the honest truth. 
The majority of men are not inclined to abuse their authority, to be domineering. There are men who are, but the majority of men I do not think are inclined to abuse their authority, to be domineering. I would suggest that the majority of men don't live up to the authority that's been entrusted to them. Most men don't live up to the responsibility that's been given to them. Most men are inclined to passivity, irresponsibility, and indifference. I have no doubt that if I were to speak to the majority of Christian wives, they would complain not of their husband's domineering leadership, but rather his lack of leadership and responsibility. Most men are prone to be like Adam, When the serpent was deceiving Eve, Adam was there doing absolutely nothing. That's why I think he instructs us the way that he does here. Paul roots his prohibition about women teaching and exercising authority both in creation and in the fall. Now there is one last thing that Paul says in this passage, and it's another difficult portion of scripture to understand. To be honest with you, I don't really have clarity on it. I have an idea, but I'm not as certain about what Paul means here in comparison to other passages in the scriptures. I'm thankful for the Apostle Peter's words in 2 Peter 3, 15-16, where he actually tells us that there are some things in Paul's writings that are hard to understand. If the Apostle Peter can say it, I feel free to say it. See, though the woman was deceived and became the transgressor, transgressor, Paul then says, kind of out of nowhere in verse 15, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, there's a lot of discussion about what this means. Many see an allusion to the promise of the gospel in Genesis 3.15, where God says that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Through her seed, salvation will come to the human race. And so through childbearing, she will be saved. So long as they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And I think there's really probably some truth to this argument. I think there is, there is some kind of allusion here to the gospel of Jesus. But I also think that Paul is not just referring to Eve giving birth. Notice that he goes from the third person singular, she to the third person plural, they, suggesting that he's referring to women in general, specifically Christian women, with what he says next about faith, love, holiness, and self-control. In other words, I think Paul is illustrating how women can strive for obedience and holiness by embracing their God-given design. And in embracing their God-given design, along with faith, love, holiness, and self-control, they'll be saved. Now, I want to be clear. Paul's not saying that salvation can only come to women if they give birth. And he's not saying that you're somehow less of a woman if you don't have children. In other places, Paul actually holds up singleness as the ideal. There's a difference between actuality and potentiality. To be a woman means you have the potential for childbearing, but that doesn't mean that you will bear children. And that doesn't make you less of a woman. 
Also, we know that we are saved by grace through faith. He's not here teaching salvation by works. But he's capturing the fundamental differences between men and women in this passage that have been divinely ordained by God. And childbearing is the clearest example of that fundamental difference in regards to women. He's exhorting women to embrace their God-given role and design as those who bring forth life. In other words, one of the ways that women demonstrate that they are women of faith is that they don't reject the design that God has for them. That is, it's a call for women to not despise the way in which God has made them. You see, part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is embracing God's order in creation, God's design for his creatures. And part of what it means to reject God and not follow him is to attempt to defy nature and to do that which is contrary to nature, to reject God's design. I mean, that's exactly Paul's argument in Romans 1, right? They did what was contrary to nature. See, I don't think it's a coincidence that as our society becomes more and more godless, you have more and more beliefs that are outright in defiance against our human natures. We have ideologies that are telling people that men can be women, and women can be men, and men can give birth, and women can whatever. I don't know. It's just crazy. See, we know that we're saved by faith alone, but we also know that true saving faith is never left alone. True saving faith produces in us obedience and also a conformity to God's will and design for us as human beings made in his image and likeness, both male and female. And I think that that's what Paul is getting at here. But I don't know for sure. I hold it like this. I'm far more certain about Jesus dying for my sins than I am about what Paul is articulating here. Well, what does this all mean for us? Well, a few things I want to say. I want to say this to my sisters in the Lord. Please hear this. God would not establish something that was inherently harmful toward women. God would not establish something that was inherently harmful toward women. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that these truths can't be distorted and corrupted. Ever since sin entered the world, we know that one of the results of the fall was disruption and conflict between men and women. The harmony and oneness that they shared was severed. That's why in Genesis 3, you read the curse that the woman will desire her husband, but he will rule over her. And that ruling there is an oppressive form of rule. And part of what the gospel brings is healing and restoration between the sexes. But we also know that it won't fully be realized until the new creation. But God would not establish something that was inherently harmful toward women. Secondly, We must learn to not only submit to God's word, but delight ourselves in God's word and instruction because it's for our good. There are certain things in the Bible that are easier to accept, to believe, to delight in, and conform our lives to. But there are also other truths in the scripture 
that are hard for us to stomach for several different reasons. And I think the true test of discipleship is how you respond to those portions of Scripture. One of the tasks of a disciple of Jesus, whether male or female, is to not only submit ourselves under the authority of the Scriptures, even when it may be hard and we don't fully understand, but it's important that we strive to delight ourselves in God's revealed will because it's actually for our good. See, I have no doubt that in this room there are both men and women who find this passage easier to accept than other men and women in this room. And for those who find this passage more difficult to accept, to embrace, but yet you choose to because it's God's word, I want to push you a little further and say, it's so good that you're willing to submit to God's word even when it's hard. But I want to encourage you to go further and ask God to help you delight in his design and in his instruction. Thirdly, men of Royal York, do not dare use this passage as a way for you to have little regard for your sister's thoughts, wisdom, and counsel. Like if you think this passage means that you don't ever need to listen to a woman or receive counsel or instruction from a woman, then I think you are a fool. Some of the wisest counselors in my life have been women. And I thank God for the godly, biblically thoughtful women in my life. I'll be honest with you. The first three years here at Royal York would not have succeeded if not for the help of several women in this church. Our sisters are our fellow co-workers in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see this so clearly in Paul's greeting in Romans 16 and the number of women who are listed there and the absolute admiration and love that Paul has for these women who worked with him in the advance of the gospel, who he calls fellow workers. They were fellow workers alongside him in the gospel ministry. Lastly, as a church, I want to encourage us to abide by God's restrictions, but not be more restrictive than God. I hear often from women that there is always an emphasis upon what women can't do rather than what women can do. And there partly is some truth to that, and some of that is simply the result of having to push against our culture. But I do think we need to emphasize more of what women can do and not restrict women from doing things that God doesn't restrict. So let me be clear. At Royal York, there are really two things that women cannot do. As elders, we believe that Paul here in 1 Timothy 2 forbids women from being elders and exercising authority in the church and from teaching in the assembled body of believers for corporate worship. And by the way, that's true for most men as well. So what does that look like? Well, as elders, we have no objection with women reading the scriptures. That's why we had Bev read the scriptures this morning. We have no objection with women praying, leading the singing, because the scriptures don't forbid those things. In fact, we want to encourage this. The elders are the worship leaders of our church. And we entrust certain things in the service to different men and women. Not only that, 
Though we wouldn't allow a woman to teach on a Sunday morning during our actual corporate worship, we wouldn't have a problem with a sister in the Lord who was well-trained in something like church history and provided a course for both men and women on a Thursday night where they would learn about church history or another biblical theological topic. Similar to when Linda Bartsey teaches both men and women about what the Bible says about life and what it means to be pro-life. Now, I realize that not everyone may agree with that, and that's okay. The fact is, not everyone who believes this teaching agrees with how it works out perfectly in the life of the church. The principles are pretty easy to understand, but where there is often disagreement is how those principles are practically worked out in the church. But let me say this. Dwayne Klein said this to me a while ago, and I've never forgotten it. He said this, It is sinful to allow women to do something that God forbids. And it's just as sinful to forbid women from doing something that God does not forbid. And so to my sisters at RYBC, please hear me when I say this. You are not second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. And I want you to serve and use your gifts in all the ways in which God allows for you to do so. I want you to study and learn the scriptures so that you can teach other men and children, and even in some contexts, even speak to men. I realize that might not be your desire, and that's totally fine. Not every man is called to teach either. But every Christian woman should strive to study and learn the scriptures so they can disciple individuals in their lives. And also, don't ever downplay the role of teaching children the word of God. I can't even begin to imagine the number of men and women who are followers of Jesus Christ because they had a mother or a teacher that knew the scriptures and taught them the word of God from a young age. In fact, Timothy was one of those men who was taught the sacred scriptures by his mother and grandmother. We need women like Dorcas, which Acts tells us that she was full of good works and acts of charity and love. Listen, you are just as essential in the church of Jesus Christ as any man is. Jesus Christ has made us both men and women joint heirs together with him. And so let us not be more restrictive than God, thinking that we're somehow wiser than God, but let us also not disregard God's restrictions as though we're somehow wiser than God. I want to end off by reading to you a quote by Augustine. Jim actually uh, gave me this quote. Augustine was reflecting on the role of women, and he said this about women who partnered with the apostles and also with Jesus in his ministry. And listen to this in his concluding comments about these women in the scriptures. The women of those days were more spirited than lions, sharing with the apostles their labors for the gospel's sake. In this way, they went traveling with them and also performed all other ministries. And even in Christ's day, there followed him women which ministered unto him of their substance and waited upon the teacher. May the women of Royal York be more spirited than lions in serving and ministering in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I simply want to give you thanks for my sisters in the Lord. 
who often serve in so many ways in our church that, that goes unseen. Whether it's caring for the little ones, whether it's teaching kids at Royo, whether it's meeting people's needs. And there's lots of needs in our church, and I know that there are many women who rise to the occasion to care for other people in our church. And I give you thanks for all of our sisters in the Lord. And I pray, God, that that you would use them for your glory in the specific ways that you would call them to serve, in the specific giftings that you have given them, that they would be creative and that they would look for ways to be your servants in this world. I pray that both men and women here at Royal York would partner together for the sake of the gospel, be unified under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that we would also submit to this passage that we would obey it here at this church. More and more churches are compromising on this truth. And I pray that that would never be so in Royal York's history, that we would place ourselves under the supreme authority of your word and live according to it for the sake of your gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.